James 2. James 2, verse 14 through 26. If you'll turn in your Bibles, we are moving through James. We looked last week at uh, partiality in James 2, 1 through 13, and its disastrous effects. And we said that, it's disa- that partiality, though seemingly a benign, a harmless sin, is disastrous on a few, few fronts. And it was because, number one, that it contradicts God's character. We said that we showed that God does not show partiality. Deuteronomy 10, 17 talks about that. It said that it contradicts the gospel, that God has not shown favoritism. He has been impartial in His offering of the gospel, in His dying for sinners, that God has not been partial in that, that so that the favoritism contradicts the gospel. But lastly, it was a violation of of the law, and we said the whole law and the prophets could be summed up in this, love your neighbor as yourself. Matthew 22, 36 and 7, Galatians 5, 13, the whole, everything is summed up in this, love your neighbor. And partiality is a violation of love. And we said the, the subtlety of partiality, the dangerousness is this, that it looks like when we're, when we're partial, it looks like we're serving somebody else, but the reality is, is who we're serving is ourselves. That's the subtlety of partiality, because who we're serving, we're serving them so eventually they can serve us. And so it's a contradiction of the sacrificial mercy that we've seen and and will see today. And James gave a clear example in chapter 2. Rich man walks in, clearly very rich, gets treated very well. Poor man walks in, gets treated very poorly all because of what the rich man had to offer. See, who we're serving, again, in partiality, who we're serving when we play favorites, when we judge between one another, who we're, who we're actually serving in ourselves, and that's the subtlety there. And we close by showing the emphasis on mercy. And he says, For the judgment, verse 13, will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And we talked about what that meant about future judgment. We are going to be judged at one point in our lives. When our lives end, we're going to be judged. You're either going to be judged in your sinfulness or you're going to be judged in your salvation. Two different judgments. The great white throne for those who have never repented of their sinfulness and called upon Jesus. And the Bible says they will be convicted as sinners and cast into eternal punishment, hell. And at the Bema seat, believers are going to be judged from a stewardship. What did you do with God's grace? Did you show the same mercy? Did you show that mercy that you received in the gospel? And today builds on that idea of mercy. Keep that in mind. Again, at the end of my tenure, I want you to understand context is king. Context, context, context. These letters, they're written in a context. These are not just random thoughts just thrown all over the board. There's a point James is making, context. Everything that that is written throughout the Bible is written in a context. And if we just start plucking things out without understanding the context, you, you get yourself in a lot of trouble. The context is mercy. James is talking about mercy. He just finished talking about mercy and that judgment will be merciless for those who have not shown mercy. We've seen throughout chapters 1 and 2, mercy, sacrificial mercy. Mercy. And what we see today is the same thing. It, it goes back to that character of God. It goes back to sacrificial mercy. And I believe wholeheartedly what James is talking about in chapter 2, verses 14 20 through 26, is the true work of our faith 
in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ is sacrificial mercy. That's the true work of faith. Sacrificial mercy. And I think that's what James teaches us here, and that's what I want to teach us today. And the first point is this, and you'll see it as I read verses 14 through 20. Faith that fails to show itself through sacrificial mercy to those who are in need is useless. A faith that fails to show itself, to exhibit itself with sacrificial mercy is useless. Look at verse 14. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed, and be filled, yet you do not give him them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you by my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Uh, on the front end, I, I come to you humbly and admit to you that this is probably one of the most difficult passages, not only in James, but one of the most difficult passages in the New Testament. Th this passage has caused... Many of biblical scholars to struggle mightily with James, to avoid James, to, to cast James aside. If we're not careful, you'll come up with interpretations of James and, and it will pit James against Paul who says that faith alone saves. This is a difficult passage. And I'm going to attack it with what I believe to be the most accurate interpretation consistent with the context. I'm not going to read into this thing more than it says. I'm going, to try to, I'm going to say on the front end, hey, I'm humble enough to admit that I don't have a corner on the market on theology. I'm not the smartest guy in the bunch. I, 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 I could be wrong. I don't believe, hear me, I don't believe I am. And I don't say that arrogantly. I'm simply saying I, I really have a strong conviction that this is what James is saying here. The fear and the responsibility that I face every day when I stand up here and say, Thus says the Lord, that it is a heavy, heavy thing. I'm not saying that for pity. I'm not saying that for you to feel sorry for me. This is where God called me. It is a very difficult thing to stand up here week in and week out and say, Thus says the Lord. That is a weight that even I myself did not comprehend when I agreed to be your pastor. But yet it's before us. And here's the difficulty with this text. Everybody has works. Even the non-believer has works. They can do works. And I think that's the point that James is making. Even the antagonist that we encounter that James introduces us to in verse 18 has works. Everybody's doing things. And if we're not careful... 
It's those things that we start measuring and comparing. Well, I did this five times. Well, you only did this four times. Well, I did this twice. And we start comparing. We start talking about degrees of faith. Pride starts creeping in. You know, I, I did it this amount of times. You only did it this amount of times. Where are you? What, and, all, and, 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 and I did it five out of seven days. You only did it three out of seven days. What's the problem? I, I think that's where James is going with this. I think, I think in doing this, when we come to this and we just talk about doing, 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 whatever that is, I think we miss the most fundamental aspect to what James is revealing to us. And I think this is, this is what it all boils down to. This is the question, this is the differentiating thing between James and the antagonist, and, and it's this, why do you do or don't do what you do? Why do you do what you do? Or why do you not do what you do? Think, think about that for a moment. Why? Why do you do what you do? What, what's the motivation that lies behind doing what you do? What, what's the goal? What's the, what's the end game? Who, who are you doing it for? Are you doing what you're doing because it produces results? Because it produces benefits? Are you doing what you're doing simply because it reflects the character of God? See, that's what James was getting to in chapter 2. Serving the rich man brought benefits. It brought clear results. This rich man, if I serve him and I cater to him, it'll come back to me. Meanwhile, James says, no, 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 that, that, that's not pure religion. James 1, 26 and 7, pure religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to serve the widow and orphan in their distress. Why? Because the widow and orphan have nothing to repay you with. They have nothing to offer you. It's completely sacrificial. We, we can do a lot of things, again, just like we said, with ourselves in mind. We can do everything with ourselves in mind. We, we can do all that we do. We can do works till, till we're just wore out and yet had done it a whole time with ourself in mind. And James is saying that's not the result of faith. J James is dealing with the heart here. He, he's dealing with character here. O outwardly, we can do everything that looks right, but we can do it with the wrong motives for the wrong reasons. We, we can be so calculated in our efforts, that really we require little faith. We're doing what we're doing because of us. And in the end, who we're serving is ourselves. And again, we saw it last week. And I think more than that, James is asking the question, and because it'll flow right into chapter 3, are you doing what you're doing based on worldly wisdom? Based on fleshly wisdom? Or is it based upon the Word of God and godly wisdom? You doing it because it makes sense in the world's eyes? Namely, because there's a profit to it? Or are you doing it simply because God told you to do it? Are, are you doing what you're doing because it makes sense? Because the person you're serving maybe can return the favor, or maybe it'll be like a boomerang and it'll come back to you someday? Are you doing what you're doing simply because God tells you to do it, and, and you don't see the profit? Matter of fact, there may not be a profit. There may be all cost. But you do it anyway. That, that's the point I think James is getting to. 
the bottom line is, is it for results? And when I say results, here's what I mean. Are you doing something? Are you doing what you're doing right now because it can repay you? Because ultimately it will serve you. I think that's what James is getting at here. It, it could be something tangible. It could be fame. It could be people thinking nice things about you. It could be honor. It could be about being noticed. It could be about pride because of how you want people to think about you or talk about you, that you'll be better than someone else. All of those are selfish motives for doing things. All of those lack the sacrificial, merciful character of our Father. Why? Because you and I become the center of all things. You and I can become the reason we're doing everything. And we do it based on a calculated means of, will I be repaid? And, and like it or not, these reasons reflect our character. And, and they reflect our source of wisdom. And, and what do we do? What do we deem as wise? And, and the issue of, of faith and the content is a big deal. Look at verse 14. What use it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith and he has no works, can that faith save him? The content of our faith matters. What we believe matters. What we believe about God matters. These are huge. Look at the illustration. Verse, starting in verse 15. And this, this is the work. Again, this is the work James is pointing to. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed, and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for the body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. Again, many of the writer, many of James's audience, many of whom he's writing, were poor. They had nothing to offer. Nothing. He's saying, how are you responding to these people? There's a, there's a believer here clearly doing without the basic needs. James goes very clear. It's basic needs here. No clothing, no food. James, in the Greek, James makes very clear that this is not an excess issue. These are basic daily provisions to live. Daily food, he says, is without clothing and in need of daily food. These are basics. The brother and sister are doing without basics. They're cold, they're hungry, they're doing, out, doing without daily necessities. How do you respond? And, and in this case that James points out, the, the believer responds by saying, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and gives them nothing to meet the need. Nothing. Gives them nothing. The response here in the Greek, it's written in the passive tense. Literally, the response is this. I hope somebody helps you. I hope somebody fills you. hope somebody warms you. hope you find what you're looking for. Literally, it's showing that the person he's talking about has no intention of doing anything about the problem. None. And, and, and there is tremendous, tremendous irony here. Because the saying, go in peace, be warm and filled, that was a popular Jewish saying. And it was built, if not entirely, it was built partially on Jesus' regular response to people. When you look at the Gospels, you see Him respond that way. But here's the missing thing. Here's what they were missing. Jesus responded that way after He did something about the problem. 
after he had sacrificed, after he had shown mercy. You didn't, you didn't just walk up to Jesus and he said, hey, I hope, you, I hope you figure it out. Hope you find somebody to meet your need. No, he said that after he met the need. Look, look at verse 17. Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. He's saying that kind of faith that doesn't express itself in sacrificial mercy is useless. It does no good. You say, well, what's missing? Why, why is it useless? Because it didn't meet the need. It didn't meet the need. It, it lacked the reality of sacrificial mercy. It lacked the reality of serving somebody who can't return the favor. Again, that's James 1, 26 and 7. Pure religion is serving people who can't return the favor. That's the gospel. Jesus saved Chris Basham, somebody who couldn't return the favor. No matter how well I preach, no matter how, how much I do, I could never return the favor. I'll never pay him back for salvation. I'll never outgive him. I'll never, I'll never work off the debt because every single day, his grace in my life is multiplying at a rate far greater than I would ever attempt to repay it. Every single day. James 1.16 says, Every day there is a new dose of grace waiting at my doorstep for me to get through that day. Every single day I'm a debtor to grace. He loves me every single day through Jesus Christ, though I'm unworthy, though I have nothing to offer, though I don't look like Him, act like Him, I, He adopted me nonetheless. And what he's, James is saying is, their faith was not being carried to the intended culmination by offering God's character sacrificial mercy to others. You've been shown sacrificial mercy. You say you receive sacrificial mercy, but then you're not showing sacrificial mercy. He says, that's useless. It would be like me giving you, there's a show out where they're giving these people $100,000 and they're saying, hey, go do something with it. It would be like using it on yourself. No, their goal of that whole show is to use it on others, to give it away. And look with me, this is significant. Look with me at example of this in Matthew 25. I think we'll, you'll see the, the point in Matthew 25, the good and the bad here. And turn with me there because there's a bunch of verses. Matthew 25, verse 31. Check my phone here. I keep forgetting to get this battery fixed. I don't want y'all to think I'm waiting on a text or something. Like, but Matthew 25, verse 31. He says, But when the Son of Man comes in His glory and the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate them from one from, from, from one another, as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Listen to this, verse 30, and this is the key. For I was hungry, and you fed me. I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in, naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, you came to me. The, these people have a, have a need, they, they've given sacrificially. This, that's how they responded to the sacrificial mercy. Verse 37, Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? 
or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? Listen to this, verse 40. The king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. They just sacrificed. They gave. Not for their own benefit, for the benefit of others. They kept no records. They kept no accounts. They weren't trying to balance the books. They simply gave mercy out of the overflow. And again, the overflow of our faith is mercy on behalf of others. But look at the opposite. Look at the opposite side, verse 41. You see the other side of the picture. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and the angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, you did not invite me in. Naked, you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, you did not visit me. Then they will say, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or naked or sick or in prison or did not take care of you? Then he will answer them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it for one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Acts of sacrificial mercy reveal our faith. That's exactly what John says in 1 John 3, 16 and 17. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Are, are you serving for your glory or the glory of God? Are you serving to get something in return? Or are you serving sacrificially? Are you serving for results? Or are you serving in spite of results? Sacrificial mercy, I, I believe that is what, what is binding this whole letter. It, it's, it's godly wisdom versus worldly wisdom. It's giving for the sake of giving, expecting nothing in return, because that's exactly what Jesus Christ did for us. He gave His life for us and offered salvation. Offered it. And without it, our faith is useless. It doesn't show the character of God. It doesn't take faith to its intended, to its intended goal. One that refuses to serve the poor, one that caters to the rich over the poor, shows they're living not according to godly faith, they're living according to worldly faith. They're not responding to the gospel, they're responding to themselves. And again, look at verse 18. Here's why I say that. Verse 18 is, is James's uh, antagonist, his opponent. But someone may well say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. That's the antagonist. He says the same exact thing that James is saying. Faith without works is dead. Show me your faith by my works or show you faith without the works. He says the same exact thing. You believe that God is one, but look, look at James's response in verse 20. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow? James calls him foolish. He says the same exact thing that James said earlier, and yet James calls him foolish. You ever been in a, you ever been in a conversation, and, and I'm a sports guy, so this, this can happen. You ever been in a conversation with somebody, and you're talking about football, and the other person's talking about football? And, and you go on with the conversation, and then you realize they're not talking about the same football you're talking about? They're talking about a round, a round football that's white and black. 
And you're talking about an oblong, oblong whatever that fo- shape of football is, that's, that's made out of pigskin. They're talking about, a, they're talking about a, a football game that's played on a field that's about 120 yards long and about 70 yards wide. And you're talking about a, a game of football that's played on a 100-yard field and it's about 50 yards wide. They're talking about a game that goes on forever and it ends in one nothing. We're talking about a game that gets about, has, goes on forever and you're only watching the guy play about 12 minutes and it's 35, 31. Some of the same, you're using the same word, but talking about different things. See, I, I believe James and his, the antagonists are talking about works, but they both have a different idea of what works are. See, the antagonist says, hey, I'll show you by my faith by the results. Look at this. Prosperity, stuff, provision. James is over here saying, my faith stands alone. Sacrificial mercy. I may not have anything to show for it except my faith. Character of God. This guy over here, the antagonist, is saying, hey, I got tangible stuff. I got proof. James is saying, no, 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 the Proof is the sacrificial mercy. I got nothing. I may have nothing to show for it. No works in that sense. Because sacrificial mercy, guess what? It costs the giver and it benefits the one who gets it. See, the works that the antagonist was talking about benefited himself. He gave because it benefited him. And he gave to gain something. And James says, I don't give to gain something. All I have is a, a, a bunch of widows and orphans and poor people that have been provided for. I... There's no proof over here. There's no proof. This other guy over here is saying, hey, but I serve the rich, and I got all these rich friends, and I got all this stuff. What James is saying is faith that doesn't display itself in sacrificial mercy is useless. Meaning it does, it's not carrying faith to its intended result. It's not ministering to others. It's not others-mindedness. It's not carrying faith out to its intended result, a result that glorifies God over self. And that's why the point one which James makes is that faith that fails to show itself through sacrificial mercy is useless. It's not, it's not carrying us to an end. It's not getting to the end. And, and, and he, James, I believe, makes this point very clearly with what he says about Abraham and Rahab here. And, and that's point number two, that faith that shows itself through acts of sacrificial mercy is not useless, it's fruitful. That's the point he makes in verses 21 through 26. And he pictures Abraham and he pictures Rahab. The first thing he says about Abraham is this, that Abraham acted based upon God's word, not expected results. You can go to Genesis 22. The story started in Genesis 15. God promises Abraham a son. Abraham and Sarah are very old. Not not the age that you would expect a child. Time goes by. Lots of time goes by. Abraham and Sarah go to Egypt. You you know what Abraham did there. He lied about who Sarah was. He's like, hey, if I'm going to have this child, I kind of need a wife to have a child. So let's lie about your age so he don't take you and kill me because you're beautiful. Let's lie about your age. He did that. God deals with him. Still no child. Sarah comes up to Abraham, and I, I, this, this is crazy. Says, hey, you know what? What about Hagar over here? You ever thought about Hagar? Abraham's a guy. He probably thought about Hagar. It's been a long time. 
It says, why don't you have a child through Hagar? That's where you get Ishmael. All kinds of problems came through Ishmael. Again, both of those are trying to achieve the promise through the flesh. Both of those are worldly wisdom, worldly ways to try to get results. Guess what? Over here, you have Abraham and Sarah still depending on God, no child. Finally, God gives them a child, Isaac. Old child. They get a child. Genesis 22, God tells Abraham to go up on a mountain and sacrifice Isaac. Scholars say there could have been as many as 30 years between Genesis 15 and Genesis 22. Abraham certainly would have grew, we see evidence of that, grew and matured. The content of his faith would have matured. What he believed about God and His mercy would have matured to the point that he trusted. Between the, between the point in Genesis 15, 6 when Abraham believed God and the point where Abraham was willing to sacrifice Isaac... Abraham had acted out of a faith that felt he deserved, like he would get his own prosperity, worldly wisdom. But, but again, in the end, his faith grew to the point that he was willing to sacrifice Isaac. Look at verse 2, 24 of, of, of uh, James. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. He's, he's essentially saying there that, one co- that the faith comes to completion as a person acts on the merciful, sacrificial, merciful character of God. And this, that's, that's the completion. That's where it's entire. To the point that Abraham was willing to go up on a mountain and sacrifice the promised son. To sacrifice him. And again, this is the example that James gives for works to contradict the antagonist's claim about evidence, about results. Think, think about what Abraham was doing. What was the benefit? What did Abraham gain by obeying God? Zilch. Nothing. Matter of fact, if things go the way God tells him, you know what he's coming back from? He's coming down off that mountain with one less child. Sacrificial mercy. Abraham didn't gain. There were no immediate beneficial results. He simply trusted the character of God. And the fruit of that obedience was that he simply got his son back. Something that he had before. There was no actual act of sacrifice. Abraham was simply giving up that which God had given him. Even if it would have followed through. He didn't give up anything. And the point is that he was willing to sacrifice because God told him that he trusted the character of God. It was a character issue. And Abraham's faith rested totally upon the character of God, not results or success. But but not only Abraham, James uses Rahab. This is even a crazier story. Rahab acted based on the God who she knew God to be, not expected results. And and you can turn to Judges 2. You may be less familiar with with this story of of Rahab. It's It's in Judges 2. What time is it? We've got time. It says, Now the angel of the Lord came upon Gilgal to Bacham and said, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land which I have sworn to your fathers. And I said, I will never break covenant with you. As for you, you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars, but you have not obeyed me. What is this you have done? He goes on and he, he talks about in, in, in following. He says, The sons of Israel, 
did evil in the sight of the Lord and served Baals, and they forsook the Lord of the fathers. They had brought them up out of the lands. Go, it goes on and on about how they had disobeyed. They had forsook the Lord. The Lord raised up judges. And it goes, it goes on and on. And here's what happened. To the point where he was going to destroy Canaan. Going to destroy it. And, and this is a woman, Rahab, who it, the, the story goes on to say that she had heard about God's greatness. She had seen all the things that God did on behalf of His people. It, it very clearly, you can read it there, where it talks about how, how she, had, um, she knew what they were doing. She knew, she had heard all about God's... Done. She has faith in the Lord when these guys show up, it seems. And, and, and again, this is a woman who would have been in stark contrast to Abraham, yet she acted sacrificially from the same faith. She knew that, that God had delivered Israel from, from the blood of the Passover lamb. She knew the mercy. She, she knew about all that. That picture of the Passover was to, to, to talk about the death of a coming son. She, she was willing to sacrifice herself for that God as Abraham was willing to sacrifice. Listen, if Rahab was wrong, these spies come to the land, she, to her house, she houses them. The other people from Canaan come and say, hey, you got guys here? And she's like, no, I think they went that way. And, really, and she protects them, and then she lets them get out alive. Listen, if, if things don't go right here, Rahab is dead either way. Rahab is dead as a traitor, or Rahab is dead because she's a Canaanite and God's going to kill all the Canaanites. Rahab's faith, she simply acted in faith. She simply acted in the character of God. Her action was based on faith with no guarantee of results. None. Now, of course, the ultimate result was that she was allowed to live instead of being executed. But again, she, lived, she was living before. Neither act was wise in the world's eyes. Neither held out a promise for profitable results. Both were completely sacrificial and were done because of the character of God. Each of them had mercy, and they gave it. They gave it. Each was willing to suffer for their God because of who they knew Him to be. They were willing to pay the price, whatever it took. And I think that's the point that James is making, why he chooses Abraham and Rahab specifically, is to make his point that our salvation ought to result in sacrificial mercy given to others regardless of the cost. I mean, sacrificial mercy. Both were willing to take humongous risks at their own cost because of their faith and who they knew God to be, His character. Both of them went against everything in their culture, if you will. Everything their culture said was good and profitable, they went against it. All because of who they knew God to be. Sacrificially merciful. Useful faith. Completed faith. Faith that was brought to its intended end. A faith that's alive. A faith that, uh, that gives sacrificial mercy at others at our cost, no matter the cost. And that's a picture of the gospel. I, I think about Second Peter here where it talks about the, that Jesus, it says, but false prophets also rose among the people just as there be false teachers among you who secretly introduced destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. Jesus Christ's death was sufficient even for those who would hate him. 
even those who would never repent. He says he paid the price, denying the master who bought them. That's sacrificial mercy. And the question before us today in response to this is, might we be willing to take risks for the gospel because of the sacrificial mercy that we've been given through the gospel? Might we be willing to sacrifice whatever God may call us to sacrifice, no matter the cost, because of the gospel? The question you have to ask yourself is this, does your life exhibit sacrificial mercy, no matter the cost? And might we be motivated to remember 2 Corinthians 8 9 that for our sakes Christ became poor. Though he was rich, he became poor for our sakes that we might become rich. Sacrificial mercy. Matthew 20 28. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom. Sacrificial mercy. He, he came for sinners, he came for his enemies, he came for those who hated him. That's you and me. Great sinners and yet has offered forgiveness. That's a picture. Our giving sacrificial mercy is a picture of the gospel. Showing sacrificial mercy because we first received sacrificial mercy in the gospel. Looking back to the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and that being the the source, that being the well that we draw our sacrificial mercy from. Why? Because He first gave it to us. That though we were sinners... Christ died for us. Might we be willing to do the same for others?